Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Siander Stearman. Siander is a social policy, political science, and international relations graduate who currently works as a social science researcher based in Cape Town. She's a recipient of both the Shivening and the Fulbright scholarships and holds advanced degrees in conflict, security, and development studies from Sussex University and in international development from Brandeis University. The undergrad degrees in IR and political science are both from the University of Stellenbosch. Siander has worked in various roles related to political and social science research over the past decade, and each of these professional experiences have informed her research and writing on policing and police militarization in South Africa. Today, I'm speaking to Siander about her new book, Can We Be Safe? The Future of Policing in South Africa. In the book, she explores the distant and recent history of policing in South Africa, as well as some of the contemporary realities we all have to live with. It touches on colonial history, police brutality, inequality, the problem with public perceptions about crime and the misuse of this for political rhetoric, gangsterism and social order, the criminal justice system, and the ordinary lives of those who are affected by our crisis of policing. The book suggests that things have not been working and will not work to make us feel safe and live safely unless we imagine a new system entirely. In the book, Siander says, Inequality in South Africa is evident not only in who is policed and how, but also in the allocation of police resources. As it has always been in the past, the allocation of resources does not always follow need. If we want to create a society that cares equally about the protection and safety of all communities and a police system that responds with equal urgency and empathy for people regardless of their social status, then the horribly unequal state of affairs that we have right now in terms of resource allocation must be completely altered. So today I'll be talking with Zianda about her vision for policing in South Africa, her studies abroad and her feminism. Welcome Zianda. Thanks, Jen, and thank you for that. Um, really thorough, <laughs> but um, but yeah, really, really uh, comprehensive and complimentary uh, introduction. Well, thank you for coming on. So Can We Be Safe covers a huge range of topics related to policing in South Africa and the many, many flaws with how it's planned and how it's rolled out. I'm interested in understanding why this issue was important for you to write about and what you hoped to achieve with the book. I think a, a real sort of um, or an important um, aspect of, of understanding, I guess, the context for um, the writing for the book is definitely, um, you know, I, in 2017, uh, when I was at Sussex University, I wrote um, my first master's thesis in security studies on uh, the militarization of policing in Brazil and South Africa. Um, and basically what I saw as, as an issue of uh, you know, policing and a crisis really of policing in two of the most unequal um, countries in the world that are really similar in their sort of experiences of race and racism, uh, you know, of policing, of um, inequality, of drugs and gangs and violence. Um, and, and particularly, I think of, um, you know, the, the favelas of Rio 
um, and the, the sort of lush, amazing uh, beaches that remind me so much of Cape Town. Um, and similarly, the, the favelas of um, Sao Paulo and the, the, this incredibly vibrant city that also reminds me a lot of uh, Johannesburg. So in writing that uh, back in 2017, it sort of started me on a, on a journey, on like a formalized academic journey of, of just trying to figure out why in the world we have, um, you know, the police service that we have, um, what, what the reform of policing looked like uh, post-1994, and actually in which ways the police service didn't reform um, and almost have re-militarized um, and, and have become uh, very sort of explicitly the rollout of the military to deal with xenophobic violence, to deal with crises and issues involving gang violence, and what that actually means for, for public safety, not just our sort of confidence in the police or lack of confidence in the police, but um, what, that's, what that means for our ideas of public safety and who keeps us safe. Um, and, and all of that academic interest, of course, and, and that writing and, um, and a thread, <laughs> a viral thread in uh, July 2019 um, that I wrote about the findings from my thesis, all of that came to a head in June uh, 2020 when uh, the murder of George Floyd happened. And there was this huge global conversation around uh, race, racism, and policing, not just in America, but in, in many, many other countries too. Um, and right around the same time, or a few months earlier, uh, uh, the death of Collins Causa um, at the hands of or Johannesburg Metro Police Department and uh, the military um, uh, in South Africa. And so all of that just made the book incredibly timeous, made the need for a book that uh, really tries to contextualize policing in South Africa um, really, really um, timeous. Um, and... <laughs> Unfortunately, it's become even more um, necessary and timeless, especially with uh, the unrest in July in 2021. So I guess the sort of short answer to that is that I, I really just thought that there was a need um, for myself, at least, to understand um, and to really kind of place and contextualize my academic interest uh, in, in policing, um, you know, firmly in a South African context. But I think also for South Africans, um, you know, to, to realize that we have a crisis in policing and it is multifaceted and it is historical and it is complicated. Um, and, and what that means for us uh, moving past or moving through this crisis. So much of what you say in the book is about sort of the echoes of terrible uh, structural problems with the police throughout history and how they continue to reverberate now in our contemporary times. And so it's, it's both a crisis of policing and policing in a crisis because our inequality crisis is growing deeper. The way that the police are unequally resourced in certain areas is, is mirroring that. And we have the situation where there's a conflation of the, the police and the military in some, in, in some cases. Um, but I think you're right in that it really is a time that we all need to be reflecting on, on what power we give to the police to make us feel safe and what we're comfortable with them doing to to maintain that safety and one of the things you talk about early on in the book is the way that all of us adapt personally to the failure of the police and the police system to address crime and violence and you say making your own safety is just what we do in South Africa in different ways some individuals and communities create street committees and other informal structures or unwritten rules to avoid crime like advice that your father gave you which you speak about in the book other people gather 
in community groups, both in person and virtually through social media platforms to warn each other of possible danger. For some of us, the only protection we feel we can rely on is that which we buy for ourselves from the open market, high walls, electric fences, gated communities, alarm systems, and panic buttons linked to private armed response security companies. The uncomfortable truth is that those of us who often feel the most unsafe and can afford to buy protection for ourselves are typically the least likely to be the most unsafe. So there's a lot of ideas and concepts at work in that very short section from your book. Tell us why many of us are getting our own feelings about our own lack of safety wrong and what the impact of that is. I think that, that you know, you're, you're right in, in sort of saying um, uh, that so much of, of policing is a policing crisis, but also policing in a crisis. Um, and what that sort of means, um, you know, for, for the way that uh, we as a society react to uh, the phenomenon of crime. Um, and, I, and I think sometimes very wrongly uh, sort of describe or ascribe uh, issues of crime to a security problem when they're truly a social problem. Um, the drivers of, of multiple sort of levels and categories of crime um, is not just a lack of police or a lack of police resources, and so there's, you know, perceived impunity from criminals, but it's actual social ills that are um, undergirding and driving and feeding um, so much of our, our, our sort of crime problem, and so in that sense, it's it's social, and I think that that part of that social part of it is also, uh, you know, public perceptions as well as media narratives, um, and, uh, and, you know, whose stories um, uh, and incidents of being affected by crime are the most covered or the or or well covered um, in media. Uh, you know, I immediately sort of think of of uh, the example um, of Anine Boyson um, and Riva Steenkamp, um, who died in uh, you know within sort of days or weeks of each other, and the and the way that those two stories also sort of played out in the media and how they grabbed our attention, um, but. But, but I think also really kind of framed um, a, a conversation at the time that, that was just incredibly difficult um, and obviously unbelievably painful as well for a lot of South African um, uh, women. But I think for me, really sort of underlined the fact that there, and I absolutely in no way want to trivialize, um, of course, uh, um, uh, Riva comes murder, but it was that understanding again that someone like Anine Boyson um, you know, was put into um, and placed at at danger and in danger over and over again. And women like her in in her community, particularly incredibly impoverished community, um, and and where you know attacks against um, uh, women were incredibly co uh, common, but also just levels of violence and incidents. Um, and I'm you know not saying that Riva didn't face daily danger. Of course she did. Um, many women do in South Africa, but. It's also about understanding that, uh, you know, that that danger was far more intimate to Eva in a way that wasn't necessarily the the same with um, uh, with Anine. And so you do that sort of becomes, at least for me, a kind of microcosm in trying to understand uh, the the issue of where we feel the most unsafe, where we are the most unsafe, and in that sense, then our perceptions of uh, of being able to protect ourselves. Um, but also, like you say, um, and like you said in the, in the introduction uh, to the book, the license we give police to keep us safe. Because there's this idea, of course, of a, of a boogeyman that's out there that's dangerous. 
Um, and so we want the police absolutely to do everything in their power, um, legal or not legal, actually, um, you know, to sort of protect us from that. Um, and at the same time, we're not thinking, I think sometimes, what that means. You know, who does, who does that mean is policed? Um, you know, what does that mean for police brutality? Who do we sort of turn away from um, when, when they are brutalized? And we say, oh, they deserve it. They're a gangster. They're, you know, this type of person or they're, they're that type of person from this type of community. They're quote unquote suspicious. Um, and, and really just sort of what, what that means and sort of shaping our ideas of safety um, and what, what we allow the police to then do in our name um, to keep us safe. Yeah, I mean, the episode that I did with Nahama Brody and we spoke about just this, for instance, that as a woman in South Africa, you're much more likely to be killed by your intimate partner than some you know, stranger in the road or boogeyman, as you call it. You also touched on this in your book about the way that the media reports on crime statistics confuse us about who's most effective and where the problems are. And these views of ours have these warped impacts and results in sort of social panics that have as you say, then prompted really problematic operations and police operations that have, you know, shut down areas or sent the military in. Um, what is the, the long-term impact of these warped views and the and our comfort with calling the military in instead of the police? I think the thing that frightens me the most is um, that I feel like we've crossed a line that we can't come back from even now. It just feels like almost every crisis and if we're being honest in policing in South Africa we're lurching from crisis to crisis but every sort of security crisis or you know incident of unrest you now see more and more people who think it's reasonable and logical um, to say well where is the military why can't they call in the military the military should be there I don't think people understand that it is incredibly incredibly rare for a military to be deployed within a country's borders a mandate of a military is to protect, um, uh, you know, a, a country and its borders from external threats. Um, and of course, you you know, you have the the COVID nineteen pandemic, which was just a almost a supernova type of event where we did really need the military, not necessarily to enforce lockdown regulations, but absolutely to, um, you know, help with uh, with setting up uh, additional sort of infrastructure and public health infrastructure, for example, and. Uh, military doctors and resources and personnel um, sort of shoring up our hospitals and and other uh, public health facilities. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll use the example of uh, the taxi violence, for example, um, that took place in, in July and August in Cape Town, um, where I live, and just sort of seeing more and more people saying, well, the military should be, um, you know, accompanying buses uh, or, or alternative transport during the time of that crisis. Um, or again, you know, during the, the July unrest and uh, almost immediately the calls that, that the military needs to be activated and out on the streets. If we're constantly sort of looking and turning to the military, and we've now done this multiple times, again, in response to xenophobic violence in Johannesburg and Durban and um, uh, gang violence in Cape Town, if we're turning to the military over and over and over again, and we're allowing a militarized level of policing to become normal and normalized um, in our society, I don't think we understand that the military is not, first of all, mandated to do this, but also isn't trained to do this. The military is not trained to deal with civilians um, and to, to be able to go into a situation and de-escalate it. Their training is to identify a threat and to neutralize that threat. And that's completely different to what civilian or community policing is. And if we, if we start to, to ratchet up 
our idea of what the police um, and and in this case, what the police and the military should be doing and responding, um, you know, to incidents of security and and violence, then I think we're we're really closing down um, both our perceptions of policing and what we want from the police and in order to feel safe, but also our public space in incredibly dangerous ways. I'm just I'm really just sort of quite worried about how much we're allowing our ideas of policing and our ideas of who. Uh, can enforce security to really harden um, in incredibly negative and corrosive ways, um, and that's that's really why it, why I kind of strongly advocate against the idea that we need more military rather than um, you know both capacitating communities to deal with many of uh, the underlying social problems that drive crime, um, but also um, at the very least capacitating the police to do their jobs. So this militarization has has we've become very comfortable with watching it on television. But we also noticed that the police themselves over the past decade, we've heard things like shoot to kill from Becky Taylor and shoot until you run out of bullets from Fakile and Balula. And you give good reasons in the book why this political rhetoric is actually not useful in policing. Um, can you say more about our, our comfort with police use of force and you know, what are we going to do about it? Because I think one of the things you show is that police policing has a long history and the more comfortable we get with a sort of enforcement of the law in one way, the harder it is to reform and to change police culture. I think it's it's so important for people to rethink, um, first of all, to reevaluate what they accept from politicians as, uh, you know, quote-unquote solutions to policing, um, but also what, what they... Um, you know, almost are licensing politicians to say uh, it, on many occasions or or most of the time trying to go with the sort of popular opinion. And when that popular opinion starts to, um, particularly in the case of policing, starts to harden um, and return to these very harsh forms of policing, um, including the use of the military, what that sort of means is that there's now a political incentive uh, for politicians to say, I either I alone can uh, fix this problem or I have, you know, the perfect solution. And 99.9% of the time, uh, those perfect solutions are that are that just completely lack nuance and understanding of the multifaceted and complex, but also really importantly, long-term issues um, around crime and safety. Uh, I make a sort of point in the book using a case study by a police ethnographer um, called uh, Andrew Fall, uh, you know, where he sort of talks about in... Um, a really rural part of the of the Eastern Cape, a uh, tiny town called Patterson, um, where police there, their idea of what a of what a good shift, quote unquote, is, is that they're you know out on the streets, they're highly visible, they're you know patrolling, um, but really importantly, because there aren't uh, necessarily high levels of, um, of of petty or even violent crime, their their idea of what policing should look like is is a sort of preventative. Um, aspect. And you and I would think, you know, that that uh, prevention sort of means that, uh, or crime prevention means that people's basic needs are met, and so they don't feel like they need to turn to crime to uh, meet their basic needs. But in this instance, um, sort of crime prevention for them means that they are constantly stopping and pulling over and even harassing, um, you know, young black and colored men who don't look like they belong, or who, again, that horrible word that I hate in, in policing, who quote unquote, look suspicious, um, you know, and they, they 
are able to, to in this example, on this night, you know, pull um, pull a couple of, of uh, young men over and they sort of violently um, search their belongings and they find a screwdriver and they're quite chuffed with themselves. They confiscate the, the screwdriver and, um, you know, give the, the young men an earful and, and send them on their way. But they're quite chuffed with themselves because they're like, look, we found, you know, a weapon and, and um, this, this could have been used for something in the commission of a crime. My goodness, why, why would we immediately jump to that and not think that that young man might be somebody who's, you know, trying to do peace jobs, trying to do basic sort of construction or handiwork to earn a living? Why is it immediately that he's, um, you know, thought of as a threat? I mean, we know the answers why. They're obviously very, very um, obvious, and it has to do with uh, racial profiling and, um, uh, and very harmful uh, and negative stereotypes of certain people. Um, but it's, it's, you know, sort of precisely that, that, that licenses both the police but also politicians to say, um, you know, these widely held, incredibly problematic views that you have about um, just broad swaths of people are legitimate and they're okay because you're afraid. And because you're afraid, you should vote for me because I, you know, will, will tell the police to do that even more often. That's the type of thing that, that you know, will keep you safe. And it's all this sort of um, uh, rhetoric that, that ratchets up the, the power that you give police, but also that allows politicians to say, um, you know, popular things that, that people sort of want to hear because they're, they're in this defensive crouch and they feel so unsafe. Um, instead of it actually being that crime prevention, um, you know, again, is, is just a deeply complex but also long-term effort, um, you know, that, that it requires a whole-of-society effort, but especially a whole-of-government effort to, again, meet people's basic needs. And so it, if, if we're allowing, uh, you know, both politicians and, and police officers to kind of turn to this very harsh form of policing, um, then I think we're letting politicians off the hook um, and we're, we're then sort of turning um, and another uh, security expert, um, uh, Gareth Newham uh, from the Institute for Security Studies um, said this on, a, on a, another webinar that I was on, but we then sort of allow or, or put the police in a position where they're managers of inequality. Uh, you know, they're not agents of crime prevention. They're not um, sort of forces for good for community safety. But in fact, what they're doing is managing inequality between the different classes. Um, and of course, that absolutely means that it's, uh, that it's to the detriment and to really the victimization and brutalization um, of the poor and working class. Yeah, policing poverty instead of creating real social change. And we see this all the time with gender-based violence solutions, for example, that seek to talk about, you know, releasing the names on a sexual offenders register or setting up this imaginary, still to date, imaginary National Gender-Based Violence Council, but talk less about, you know, what is causing this gender inequality, what is causing this comfort with violence, how do we address those very difficult things, you know, how do we stop children growing up in homes where they witness violence and think it's normal, that stuff is hardly ever talked about. It's not talked about by politicians, you know, maybe a small select group, but you are absolutely right in saying that the way that we think about what crime prevention looks like means shaping what we're comfortable, what solutions we're comfortable with selling at political events and, you know, at big endeavors. Um, but it also affects, as you discuss in the book, um, how, how the courts 
rule and who they rule against and under what conditions and who ends up in our prisons and under what charges. And we speak a lot about how full our prisons are of, of petty criminals who would, you know, doing really in the grand scheme of things, socially less harmful crimes than some of the more significant issues. And so if the police aren't keeping us safe and the courts aren't delivering real justice and the prisons are not serving as correctional facilities, can we be safe? Tell us about your vision for a new police system. Exactly as you were saying in setting up this question, of the roughly 1.5 million arrests um, that happen in, in South Africa almost every year, the vast, vast majority are for petty crimes um, and, and a lot of those and the, the drivers of that, of course, can include uh, and be as diverse as, um, you know, issues around um, uh, drug use, for example, um, and what that sort of pushes people to do. But equally so, um, you know, those, those issues also stem from the fact that, you know, people are hungry, people are desperate, people don't have access to the services that they need um, to make it by every day. And so once, you, once you're in that place and once you're in that um, you know, incredibly difficult position where there's pressure from multiple sort of sides and you aren't able to meet your needs for yourself um, and for for others who are dependent on you, you have have essentially sort of taken away choice. It's the, the misnomer that so many people sort of make and they go, you know, well, this person chose to, uh, you know, to engage in mugging or, or theft. Um, and really the question is, what other choice did they have? Do you have a choice when you've been pushed into... Um, pushed into a corner or pushed into a circumstance um, that's structurally almost impossible to get out of. So, you know, our, our courts and prison systems are full of people who, um, you know, are there for petty offences, who cannot afford bail. And that is just, I mean, <laughs> that's such a huge contributor to uh, overcrowding in prisons, who can't afford bail or who can't meet the, the sort of basic bail requirements of um, producing identity documents. There are very many South African citizens even um, you know, lots of people obviously talk about um, foreign nationals who aren't documented, but there are lots of South African citizens who aren't documented because we know home affairs doesn't work. That's also an incredibly dysfunctional um, sort of part of government. Um, so it's that and it's, you know, not being able to produce proof of address. You have people who are sort of trapped and, and as I say in the book, who are fed into the more of our criminal justice system uh, because of of who they are, their sort of social status in society, and that, and we really actually have to rethink this idea that we are punishing crime, because actually, in very many cases, we're punishing social ills um, that have uh, deeply affected, um, you know, someone's ability to to meet their basic needs and to um, sort of make some kind of livelihood for themselves. And once we start to do that, um, we really kind of have to unravel and then grapple with. Um, so many of the of the social problems um, uh, that sort of permeate our society, and that's that I guess is is you know what I want people to to do once they've read this book, um, and want people to understand about this this sort of vision and an idea, um, you know, of society, um, and not to dismiss um, you know incredible work uh, that's done by abolitionists who are really trying to say we don't have to keep and we don't have to keep perpetuating and funding our police service to the tune of 99 billion rand a year. Um, and we don't have to keep funding this giant prison system that delivers no justice. It delivers very little safety um, and it delivers so little of what we need to, again, 
prevent crime, not punish um, people who are who are caught up in the um, in the system of crime that we have. So ninety nine billion. I mean, it's just disgusting to be honest. <laughs> if you think about the allocation yeah. to social programs, to education, to health, to the other constitutional requirements, <laughs> to protecting our environment, to any of those other important issues that are only going to result in more crisis, more inequality. Can I add to that, that that 99 billion number, so it's 179 billion in total for our police um, and court system uh, and prison system. That's sort of how much we spend on, on what's kind of characterized um, uh, as, as a public security and law and order. Um, and that's based on 2020 um, budget figures. But importantly, the police budget has increased 66% since 2012. The police budget was 56 billion rand in, in uh, 2012. Um, you know, we've increased the number of police that are that are employed and that are out on the streets. We have roughly about 190,000 uh, SAPS personnel um, and about 160,000, uh, give or take, uh, police officers. And, you know, they just have this enormous ballooning budget. With what return? <laughs> Genuinely, with what return? Yeah, with no, absolutely no return at all. <laughs> If you look at the crime statistics as an indication, like none, none return at all. And if you think about the underfunding of institutions supporting democracy in that same period, and the underfunding and the defunding of organizations like the NPA, you are not, you, you, it's just putting money down the hole. Let us not end this conversation depressed. Let us end it hopeful that reform will happen. And let us talk a little bit about you as a person. You received not one, but two prestigious scholarships to study overseas, both the Chevening and the Fulbright. Tell me about those experiences and how they've shaped you and your outlook on the world. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always um, joke, of course, and I'm like, oh, I was so lucky to get both scholarships. Definitely wasn't luck. <laughs> I, I uh, understand and acknowledge that. Um, I Yeah, I, I just, I think I've, really sort of try to, to work hard, you know, to understand so much around uh, politics, but deeply so, um, you know, social and public policy uh, that makes sense and that is contextualized for South Africa. Um, I think that, I, so my mother was a teacher for 29 years um, and she's just, just was such an incredible teacher in so many ways, um, even to me, even though she didn't teach me, um, you know, in school formally, but and I think the one one of the first sort of ideas that I had of of um, multiple issues uh, in public and and social policy, uh, you know, was was sort of the implementation of um, the OBE system or outcomes based education. But this idea that um, you know you're you're creating public policy uh, in South Africa for a country that doesn't exist or a version of it that doesn't exist, um, I think is is why we're in so uh, so much trouble in so many different. Um, sort of aspects of, of public policy. And, and that's why I, you know, wanted to study further. Um, I kind of quite quickly realized that it's, it's also really easy to get funding to go overseas, or easier, at least, to do so than it is to, um, to sometimes find full funding for studies in, in South Africa. So, uh, yeah, I, I kind of looked around a little bit, and I found two incredible um, university courses and universities uh, and I applied to both of them uh, through Shevening and, and Fulbright. And <laughs> just by at least that part, it was spectacular luck that I um, was accepted into both programs. And, and um, that's where I found myself. And 
I really loved my British experience. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. But especially the American experience and being there during the Trump years, um, you know, was was so eye-opening and insightful in the sense that there's so much that's, of course, different about, you know, American public policy and the, the framing of it and understanding it. But also at the same time, there's a lot of similarity, um, you know, in what in what someone like Trump was able to um, to stoke in people, but also truly at the core of it lies in, you know, the social issues of, um, uh, well, of course, the economic issues of inequality, but also the social issues of xenophobia and how he was able to kind of turn people um, uh, against the other, quote unquote, and in this case, um, uh, immigrants. And what what that sort of means for, um, you know, how how political power and social policies can be used and manipulated, um, uh, either to quite literally grow a country and and um, and turn it into one where people's uh, again basic needs are met, but also uh, where their where their aspirations can be facilitated, but at the same time to then um, exclude people and to to really do harm um, against them. And I guess that 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 was, uh, and this you know the same sort of point could actually truly be said about Brexit. Because um, I was in the UK when they're trying to push through a hard Brexit, and that was <laughs> that was a disaster. But um, um, but that yeah, that was just so so useful for me to understand that very very many of of the issues that we have in South Africa, of course, are rooted in our history, um, but also that they're common in other countries too, um, and how to kind of learn to to understand that and to apply it to our context, um, and to therefore make better political. Um, decisions and public policy and social policy plans. So how does feminism come into your work in life? It's in everything. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's something that you actively have to, have to, and I at least, actively think about um, in policy design. I had a, a conversation uh, with, with a friend of mine uh, from Brandeis um, uh, who now uh, actually works in, in education um, and specifically is, is working on a sort of project on um, uh, trying to, to incorporate kind of uh, life skills programs uh, into schools in um, Philadelphia, um, but particularly through a feminist uh, lens, actually, which is I mean, just fascinating uh, work that, that, um, that she's doing. Um, and, it, and, you know, I, I said to her that so much of, of the work that, that I do and so much of the sort of policy work that I'm involved in. Um, and I'll say that specifically a project um, that I'm working on now in the Eastern Cape is a, is a rollout of a violence prevention program um, in high schools targeting uh, grade eight and grade eights and nines um, to sort of teach them socio-emotional skills um, uh, that prevent outbursts of violence. Um, and, a, and an important sort of part of that um, is understanding that violence affects uh, young uh, boys and girls and, and adolescents in the same ways, right? But the expressions of the violence um, can be quite different. Um, and, and, and that understanding that, you know, the, so many of our communities, um, uh, and particularly ones that, are, that have been marginalized and continue to face um, really sort of incredibly difficult and compounded social issues, that they affect families and they affect individuals within families um, in, in very much of the same ways. But sometimes we lose sight of uh, the, the very particular manifestations um, and effects that, the, that that has on young women. Um, so we know that it's true that um, 
particularly young rural women from the Eastern Cape and, and Limpopo, uh, there's a, 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 an, a pronounced effect, uh, sorry, negative and detrimental effect of poverty and impact of poverty in their lives. Um, and, and, you know, kind of understanding that you then need very targeted interventions um, that speak to, to those issues, uh, you know, it's not a, a recognition um, or even a downplaying of the fact that, you know, very many young men are also affected by poverty, but there's a, a very specific um, and, and targeted effect that it has on, on uh, young women. And so we need to, to design policy and to design interventions that speak to exactly that. Um, and across the board, there's, you know, so many aspects of, uh, for example, the job losses that happened during COVID that disproportionately affected women um, uh, than they did uh, men. Uh, you know, it's the unpaid care work of women uh, that wasn't recognized uh, even pre-pandemic and, and um, what it is now. Um, you know, I've uh, written a, a paper before also about the labor exploitation of um, uh, immigrant women in South Africa's domestic uh, work um, uh, sector um, and what's, what that sort of means for the fact that, you know, we have these protections and we have these regulations in place that are supposed to serve um, women who are engaged in, in domestic work, but they fail uh, women who are undocumented immigrants um, who are engaged in domestic work because, again, they're not, you know, recognized as citizens and so therefore don't have the same avenues and access to legal recourse, even though we know um, that, there, that there's quite a high number uh, of, of immigrant women who work in, in domestic work and kind of what, it, what that means for who we're leaving out of these uh, very progressive and, and very necessary um, uh, public policies. But when we kind of pretend that, uh, that, that some aren't affected by them or, or even then actively exclude, um, exclude them from those policies, how progressive are they really? Um, and do they then protect everyone or, um, or only, only some? Well, it's about being intersectional, right? And recognizing that if you don't, you know, if you don't define who is affected by a policy appropriately, you're going to have unintended consequences for the way that it's rolled out. So the last three questions I have for you, I ask of all of the guests. And the first is, do you have a book that has inspired your feminism? Of course, there are, you know, very, very many. And, um, uh, and a lot of them are, are also kind of heavily influenced, um, you know, in this interest in, in, um, in policing and, and also the idea of, of um, uh, abolition even. One book for sure that is fiction that uh, just really changed my life when I read it. I think I was about 16 when I first read it and read it again when I was about um, 19 when I was at university. Um, but it's A Thousand Splendid Sons uh, by Khalid Husseini, um, which is just the most incredible. So it's historical fiction um, set in, in Afghanistan in the 70s and 80s. Um, so, so through the sort of uh, Soviet occupation of um, the country and afterwards. And just, I mean, Husseini just writes so, so beautifully. It's the same writer who wrote uh, The Kite Runner um, and, a, and a couple of books since then, but just was so fantastic in, in having very multi-dimensional layered um, uh, characters and, and protagonists and, and uh, the vast majority being women. Um, and just, yeah, just blew me away, really sort of helped me understand so much also about intergenerational um, uh, uh, and feminist um, relationships and also uh, writing in that sense. It's a beautiful book. And 
do you have a quote that you love or that you live by? Yeah, um, so one of, uh, definitely one of my favorite quotes and absolutely one of my uh, feminist uh, heroes is uh, Audre Lorde. Um, and she has, uh, you know, a fantastic quote um, that says, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my mission, then it becomes less and less important whether I'm afraid. Um, and I, I think that just, that's just such a beautiful way to, to understand speaking truth to power, um, that, you know, using, uh, you know, all, all of the different strengths, um, you know, within ourselves, uh, all of the many strengths that, that all of us have, um, and particularly uh, women, um, sort of using those strengths in service of a greater vision and idea um, can just be so incredibly powerful um, and really um, in itself is, is a catalyst, um, you know, for, for uh, strength and, and, um, and purpose. Beautiful. And, and finally, what is your advice for other feminists on their journeys? I think the, the, the biggest sort of piece of advice and um, when I was sort of uh, thinking of this was one of the best pieces of advice that I got. And, and you know, again, I said I'm an um, avid social media user. Um, but even even sort of before that, in in my uh, in my teens, when I was sort of about sixteen, um, I really kind of figured out uh, that one of the best ways to for me to grow and to learn and unlearn um, was really to read widely and to read critically. Um, I think that there's so many, you know, I I was just talking about it a second ago with uh, with Audre Lorde, um, but there's so many feminist heroes who are who are out there, um, and and you know people who can be um, uh, heroes to, to all of us in different sort of personal ways but they're not perfect their work isn't infallible um, and it and you know if you if you don't agree with it if you outgrow them um, if their ideas outgrow you um, then that's that's perfectly fine too I think that that sometimes we sort of put um, especially uh, sort of famous uh, public intellectuals and feminists on pedestals um, and do a great disservice to both ourselves um, but to them as well. So yeah, read widely and read critically. And don't put people on pedestals because it makes it harder for them to make mistakes <laughs> and recover from mistake making. Well, thank you so much, Sianda, for your book and for this conversation. I think it's been really, really interesting to for me to read it and to think about the ways in which I think about crime and policing and hopefully for many others as well. It will help shape their thinking so that we can have a more equal world at the end of the day. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me um, on your podcast platform. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, you asked such great questions and, um, you know, really sort of, I think, brought out um, a lot of nuance um, in, in things that are in the book, but this conversation really brought them alive. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.